Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Very likely that we'll have a change of government on October the 14th. That it's very likely that we'll have a change of government on October the 14th. Previous New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern had been riding high in popularity after the last election in New Zealand. However, the political landscape appears to be not so fertile for the Labor Party in this election. And we take a look at what is likely to happen across the ditch. Immigration compliance rules are set to be tightened and permanent investigation teams will be introduced as part of the federal government reform of the migration system. This is to clamp down on criminal traffickers. It comes after the scathing findings of the Nixon review showed that there was widespread corruption of Australia's visa system, including the exploitation of vulnerable temporary migrants. Talia Kreft asked Dr Daniel Giselbash, Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney, how widespread human trafficking is. So there's definitely uh, anecdotal evidence of it happening and there's been some great investigative journalism in this space um, and it, it definitely is a problem. But in terms of the actual scale, there's actually very little... Uh, research in terms of you know, the exact numbers and scope of this, but it is a real problem and, and it's good to see the government acting on the issue. How much of an issue is corrupt agents eroding the visa system, which the government has labelled as a reason behind their proposed changes? I think I should start by saying that the vast majority of migration agents are extremely diligent and, and take their job very, very serious and do an excellent job in providing advice to their clients. There has been a long-standing issue with a small minority of migration agents who have uh, either been involved in um, criminal syndicates or, or visa scams or have been exploiting their clients. Uh, and there's also people who are not registered as migration agents but who are unlawfully providing migration advice uh, to similar ends. Do you think that the changes that the Labor government has hinted at will close these loopholes in the Australian immigration system? I think it's, it's too early to tell and I think we need um, more details on the specifics. The issue around the regulation of the migration advice industry is one that many people have been calling for tighter regulations there and I think the greater powers that are given to the uh, the, the authorities of the overseas migration agents are, are, are welcome uh, as well as the increased penalties that have been posed for people who provide uh, unregistered agents who are providing migration advice uh, and in general more uh, resources for uh, ensuring compliance with uh, existing systems and laws and identifying and um, investigating and identifying uh, people who may be um, breaching those laws and, and in particular uh, people who may be engaging or facilitating human trafficking or migrant worker exploitation is welcome. Uh, but as I said, we'll, we'll wait and see more details to see how it plays out. What do you make of the Immigration Minister Clara Neal's comments that migration compliance deteriorated under the previous Liberal government? 
I mean, what I will say about that is that there has been a very big focus on people seeking asylum by birth in Australia, and I think much of the efforts of, the, of successive governments uh, in, in recent years have all been aimed at trying to uh, stop the boats and stop people being able to seek, seek, stop people seeking asylum. Um, reaching Australia by boat, and that may have created some blind spots in terms of other systemic issues that might have been going on in the migration system. Do you think the federal government's commitment of $50 million to establish a new division strike force within Home Affairs Department will adequately address issues of exploitation? It's difficult for me to to answer that question in terms of... I know it's a significant increase. I think it's about 50% increase um, in terms of compliance funding they have already. Um, uh, but, you know, the one thing is funding and the other thing is how you deploy those resources. So I think we'd be, we'll wait and see more details on exactly what, what, what the plans are. I understand that the strike force that's been in place has been, um, that, that's been converted from a temporary strike force to a permanent strike force has been um, effective in identifying a, a number of criminal syndicates. And uh, in that regard, maybe things work well in terms of expanding resources for, for that strike with strike force and other compliance efforts. I think that we would the government has flagged further announcements coming tomorrow about the protection visa system and um, I don't want to preempt what those are, but in the colonial comments today in the press conference so alluded to the fact that there's that the ten to eleven year wait time for protection visa applications to be processed and how that's creating an incentive for people with unmeritorious claims to make claims so they can live and work in Australia. And that is a significant problem. And it's something that certainly needs to be addressed, but it needs to be addressed in a way that doesn't undermine the ability of people who are in need of protection and in need of the protection system from being able to access it and having a meaningful opportunity to put forward their case. And we have a, there's a very long history now of over multiple decades of governments trying to increase the efficiency of the protection visa system by reducing the substantive and procedural rights of applicants. Dr Daniel Giselbash, Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney, speaking there with Talia Kreft. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. In the world of Australian politics, achieving a successful referendum outcome has historically proven to be as challenging as the labour of Hercules. The Labour Party's track record in this regard has been especially disheartening. Francis Dew asked Professor Paul Strangio, a political historian and emeritus professor of politics at Monash University, what the likely challenges are to be faced on the current voice referendum. Now, Australia has had a poor success rate of referendums. Only 8 out of 44 attempts have ever succeeded and there's not been a successful constitutional change since 1977. What do you think makes it so difficult to change the Australian constitution and can you elaborate on this in context with the current situation with the voice referendum? Yes, well, um, the history of referendums in Australia has been extremely difficult for both sides of politics but particularly on the Labor side. But that's in part because you need a double majority. You need 
a majority of the national vote, but you also need a majority of states, which is four out of six states. But also the Australian public has shown itself to be deeply sceptical and also conservative when it comes to proposals for constitutional change. Now, when we come to um, the impending Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice referendum, well, initially, I think hopes were very high um, because polls suggested that there was strong public support for that proposal. But since the middle of this year, those polls have been relentlessly moving in the wrong direction for the yes case. Um, there was a essential poll out in the last couple of days which suggests the trend going against uh, the yes case might have been arrested, but that's only one poll. But the broad trajectory has been that uh, it, it's likely that it will only be around 40% will vote yes, and it's very hard to see um, the proposal being supported by majority of states. And if the referendum does indeed fail, what options do you think the government has to address the aspirations that were outlined in the Uluru Statement in regards to The Voice? Yes, it's a very interesting question. What's the fallback position? Well, the, when it comes to The Voice, the most likely option is instead of a um, constitutionally entrenched voice, one that's enshrined in the constitution, um, the fallback would be just to legislate a voice. Um, now, that's always... The Indigenous leaders have always said that's a, a poor option, a poor substitute, because it does mean, of course, that any future government could abolish that voice. Um, so it's regarded, as I said, as a poor substitute. Nonetheless in a situation where the referendum fails, it's probably the only way forward in terms of voice. We should remember, interestingly enough, that at state level, at state government level, some there's been some movement to um, um, creating voices. For example, South Australia has legislated a voice. So it might be action at the state level as well um, in light of the failure of the referendum. Well, don't you think we maybe perhaps could have another referendum if this one does fail? I think that's highly unlikely. Of course, Peter Dutton has said he would um, have a referendum if this fails, just one for symbolic recognition of Indigenous Australians. Now, Indigenous leaders have said they're not interested in that sort of referendum. Another thing that the defeat of the voice referendum will put in jeopardy is Labor's longer-term plans to go to a referendum on a republic because what would be demonstrated, again, is this entrenched conservatism by the Australian people towards constitutional change. Both at home and abroad, there will be those who view the no vote as having exposed a, exposed racism in Australia's history. Mm. Do you feel that as a nation we're obliged to correct that stigma and how easy will it be? I've certainly noticed some international media interest in the issue. So I think if it is the case that the referendum is defeated, both home and abroad, there will be some interpretation um, that um, race, racism has played a part. And I think they'll draw sustenance from the fact that the opponents in particular of the referendum 
have spoken about race consistently. So I think it will be a difficult moment in how Australia is perceived. And I think another thing um, that will come out of it, there will be a curiosity is why Australia has so much trouble dealing with this part of its history compared to other settler societies like Canada, like New Zealand, that have been able to have treaties with their Indigenous populations. What is it about Australia um, that holds back progress? From Monash University, speaking there with Francis Du. At the 2020 election, the New Zealand Labor Party achieved a miraculous feat, gaining a rare majority under the MMP system that they have. However, the political winds have changed and Labor is no longer the favourite for re-election. With the election just 10 days away, Stephen Hill talked to Julia Talbot-Jones from the School of Government at Victoria University in Wellington about the New Zealand election race. Only three years ago, the New Zealand Labor government seemed almost politically invulnerable, but Labor has suffered a significant drop in the polls, and most polls are showing the New Zealand National Party in front. Do you think it's likely that we are going to see a change of government on Saturday week? I think most pundits and New Zealand voters are aware that it's very likely that we'll have a change of government on October the 14th because in the New Zealand system we are dominated by coalitions normally, but certainly a shift from Labour is likely. And what do you think are the main reasons behind the shift in political support? Well, we've seen a dramatic shift. In 2020, Labour came in with a majority which under our mixed member proportional system is almost unheard of. They got 49% of the vote. At the moment, Labour is only sitting on 26%, so it's a significant drop. And there are multiple reasons for that. Some commentators have put it down to a shift that began as early as mid-2021 when we were coming out of COVID. New Zealand was slow to lift their restrictions on COVID, which made them seem out of touch with many New Zealanders, particularly as the cost of living crisis started to bite. And as that cost of living crisis has continued to hit people, People's back pocket. The Labour Party has seemed less and less in touch with voters. Obviously, Jacinda Ardern stepped aside earlier this year and Chris Hipkins took over the wheel. It was notable at the time, as soon as he took over that prime ministership, he dropped some of the big transformational policies of Jacinda Ardern. So he stepped away from climate change. He stepped away from co-governance. He stepped away from those big picture items and immediately shifted the focus towards what he called bread and butter issues. But despite having this pivot, it hasn't resonated with voters over the longer term. Initially, we saw a lift in Chris Hitkin's popularity, but as we have come closer to the election, Labour's increasingly seen as not the stable party for leading us through the economic challenges that most people are feeling directly in their back pocket. And there isn't evidence to show that their spending has paid off across a range of social and environmental policy areas. So the, the new New Zealand Nationals leader, Chris Luton, is a newcomer to politics. Previously, he was the CEO of New Zealand Airlines. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his policy agenda going to the election? Sure. Coming out of the 2020 election, National performed poorly and they went through a period of having a number of leadership changes in a very short time. 
Now, they got to the point where it was perceived by the National Party that new blood was what was needed. And so you had Christopher Luxon um, and his deputy, Nicola Willis, taking over the reins of the National Party. And since then, the party started to bring itself back together and appear a more stable and cohesive unit. They've campaigned heavily on tax cuts and a reduction in government spending. And again, for the reasons before mentioned, that's resonating with New Zealand voters today. So one of the issues that's getting talked about is the issue of co-governance. It provides Indigenous people with greater involvement in the management of government services. With members of the Conservative Coalition advocating stepping back from these policies, has this become an important issue on the election campaign as it moves into the final straight? It's completely off the campaign trail at the moment. For an issue that dominated the media cycle for months, Chris Hipkins has taken it off the table and National's not particularly supportive, so it's not been an issue on this campaign trail. I think the push towards co-governance will certainly pivot under a National at Coalition Finally, in previous elections, New Zealand's first son, Winston Peters, has often turned out to be the political kingmaker. But with an array of scandals and a history of frustrated political partners, there was a thought that his days of being in a coalition would be over. But with recent polls, there has actually been talk of a resurgence of New Zealand first. Could Winston Peters again be crucial to determining who will be the next leader of New Zealand? Winston Peters is an absolute political chameleon. And it looks like he might be back in the race, which obviously spices up New Zealand politics once again. One of the critique of the 2017 election coalition, which was between Jacinda Ardern and New Zealand First, is that Winston Peters was the kingmaker in that position. And one of the campaign arguments that Jacinda Ardern took to the 2020 election was the fact that Winston Peters had blocked all progress that Labour had tried to make. And so, again, we might see an interesting situation if we have a national at New Zealand first coalition coming forward. It's looking likely that Winston Peters will get back in and over the 5% party threshold, which is what they need. And if that happens and you get a three-way coalition between National Act and New Zealand First, it's certainly going to be an interesting three years to watch here in New Zealand. Julia Talbot-Jones, Senior Lecturer at the School of Government at Victoria University, speaking there with Stephen Hill. Under the cost of living crisis, it's already become increasingly difficult for international students studying in Australia just to survive. The fact that they don't have access to concessional transport cards in New South Wales has only made it worse. The Student Representative Council and Sydney University Postgraduate Representative Association at the University of Sydney recently launched a campaign calling for the New South Wales government to make concessional Opal cards to part-time and international students available. David Zhuang has this report. New South Wales is currently the only state that does not offer some form of concession or discounted travel to international students. I interviewed Harrison Brennan, Wealth Officer of Student Representative Council at the University of Sydney. I asked him why he thinks the situation is that. This has been a sort of historic thing. Back in 2006, Leon actually campaigned for two prior to the Sydney University Postgraduate Association to give international students Opal Card by basically filing a lawsuit against the government. And what they did instead was just amend the Anti-Discrimination Act and did not provide international students with Opal Concession Cards. As to why I think it is, I think the government just wants to extort um, students, international students particularly, which have been treated as cash cows continuously. 
Why do you think it's important for international and part-time students to have access to concession cards in New South Wales? As the cost of living crisis continues to get worse, we need any form of relief. You know, currently housing costs are ridiculous. Rents have soared over 24% in the past 12 months um, and much higher in New South Wales generally too. Student accommodation is ridiculously expensive, both university-owned and also those provided by private uh, institutions. And this is just but one step in cost of living relief for students, which, you know, currently international students and part-time students have to pay $50 a week cap for public transport. And we think that shouldn't be the case at all. It's about time that we have changing material. Obviously, public transport Transport should be free, I think, and accessible for all. But this is just a small step towards that goal and that would really help students during this cost of living crisis. Well, I saw a campaign on the Instagram page and then I actually saw on the poster, you guys are aiming for 20,000 signatures for the petition. So how's it going currently? Yeah, so currently as we're speaking, we have around 2,200 signatures so far, which is such a great great progress so far, given that we've only been up for like a week and a half now. And we're trying to get sort of enough signatures for the government to be aware of this campaign to be and to have a table at Parliament for them to discuss. Again, it's important that this is brought up and people are sharing this petition link. You know, we need to make sure that international students are no longer treated as cash cows, and this is one step to fix that. And also that part-time students, people who usually by context, um, by the cost of living or by placement or by virtue of having kids who are studying at uni, have the ability to study and afford to go to university, first of all, in terms of transport costs and not feel like they're going out of pocket every time they have to come in university for class. What do you think of the prospects of this campaign? Um, it will pave the way for a lot more. I think the previously the Transport Minister of New Wales, Joe Halen, has mentioned that so we'd not be against giving the students concession opal cards, but I think the prospects for it is to demand more cost of living relief for students, both at the state level and also the national level too. Demanding that public transport is more affordable for students and more affordable for everyone generally, because currently we've actually seen an increase, a 30% increase in the transport prices. And I think during cost of living crisis, the things that we use every day should not be going up and should not be negatively impacting the people who are reliant on these sources and provisions provided from the government. So, you know, the project of this is the ability to open up other campaigns around making transport more affordable and building a campaign to make housing more affordable for international students and domestic students alike and really just for better support from the government. What factors drive you guys to launch this campaign? It's been a massive concern among students for ages. Actually, recently, there was a 100-year celebration at UCID of international students, and I was out there sort of getting signatures for, for the petition that we first set up. To see the amount of people who came by and said, oh, it's about time that we have concession over cards. We I mean, had international students and part-time students were like, why don't we have concession cards already? It makes sense to do. And a lot of students have been complaining about this for ages. That's why, you know, a previous case was brought by Supra in 2006 against the government for it, because it's just like a necessary must-have thing. And currently, it's in a, it is discriminatory to prevent and preclude part-time and international students from accessing Opal concession cards and any sort of arguments against that are sort of false because it is ultimately discriminatory and that's why we're campaigning for it to be implemented. Why do you think the New South Wales government has been hesitant to make concession cards available to more students? Well, I think the government is concerned about the costs of providing Opal concession cards, of subsidising the cost for international and part-time students. I think they're very concerned and worried about that, which I don't think is a, a reasonable worry. I think when we consider the other costs, the extensive costs that international students are paying for their degree, um, the part-time international students are paying for rent, for housing generally, and so general cost of living stuff, they're paying their fair share every day just to live. I think this is one bit of relief that they can be provided. Ultimately, the, the justification also around cost is unreasonable. Like calculated estimates have said that it wouldn't be that much of a burden for the government to provide these cards. It wouldn't lose them. You know, it wouldn't take them into a deficit at all. So it's a very reasonable thing to demand. And either way, on principle alone, every student should have access to Opal Concession Cards. If you are an international student concerned about the cost of public transport, Harrison has a message for you. To anyone listening, please go ahead and sign the campaign. You can find it on the UCIT FRC's Instagram page.
or on Supra, the Postgraduate Representative Association page as well. Really stay tuned with the campaign, sign on the parliamentary petition, which there'll be links on those pages. And if you want to get involved in the campaign further, feel free to reach out to any of those pages. It's a really important campaign. I think we need to be demanding much more than just this. This is one small step in improving the material well-being and living conditions of international students and part-time students. And we can do a lot more. We've just got to make sure we continue the fight for that. Harrison Brennan, Wealth Officer at the Student Representative Council at the University of Sydney, speaking there with David Schwang. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Listener.